When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The basement smells wet. Other than random flashes of light coming through the small window, it's dark everywhere. I'm squatting on the cold concrete floor under a wooden table, covering my ears with my hands and wondering if our house will still be here tomorrow. Mom and Dad are sitting on chairs a few meters away. They're quiet. I don't like sitting on a chair. The table's like another roof. I told my parents it's like playing house, and they said it was okay. We all do different things when the lights are cut and the air raids begin. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and today I'm talking to Sara Gudazi, author of The Almond and the Apricot. In this fable about a woman suffering from the loss of her best friend, dreams seem to come from an alternate universe. Emma has a solid job as a civil engineer engaged in building sewage systems and a loving, considerate boyfriend. But in her dream life, she's a little girl in a war-torn setting that's being pummeled by bombs. The little girl makes a new friend, plays by the river, and dreams of convincing her mother to buy her a pair of cute jeans. As Emma's life begins to spiral out of control, she imagines how she can go back to her dream world and change the outcome. Changing the outcome is what she would have liked to do in her own life. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Gulli. Thank you for having me. So how did you come to write The Almond in the Apricot? Yeah, so I'd been thinking about wanting to write a novel. And when I decided to sit down and really work on one, I wrote the first two chapters, which for the most part have remained unchanged. Um, They're distinct stories, but I knew I wanted to tell them in that structure in alternating chapters. At that point, I actually didn't know what the overall story was about and what the connection between the two narratives were, except that I knew I wanted to highlight some of the effects of conflict and also the normalization of war. Um, And then it took me several drafts to figure out what the connective tissue between the two narratives was. Uh, Once I came up with the death of the protagonist's best friend, they started to fit together. Oh, that is so interesting. So in one of the narratives, uh, the word Turan shows up at the top of the chapter. What or where is Turan? So Turan is a, is a fictional place, um, but it is based on uh, Iran and for the most part Tehran. The name is a play on the word Tehran and also on Tur or Turan. 
which were characters and region named in the Shahnameh, which is a long epic poem by uh, Ferdowsi. And it's also mentioned in a collection of Zoroastrian texts. Um, in addition to that, the word Turan, if it's spelled with an O, uh, is an archway or gate, um, if, if you look it up in the dictionary. So it kind of hints um, at an entryway into a different place. Oh, that's interesting. Sorry to say it's also the name of a car. <laughs> yes, it is. I did, I did realize that. <laughs> okay. So I was a little nervous about Lily eating apricot pits because of the cyanide potential. I told you I'm a mystery writer. Can you say more about the title? The title, um, you know, I wrote, I, I came up with the title after having gotten to the chapter where she does eat eat the pits. Um, but it also, it also hints at a world within a world. Um, so it, it does talk specifically about that chapter where the, the Lily and her friend Nima are eating the pits, but it also talks about these two different narratives sort of contained within each other. And also the things you don't expect that you find when, um, you know, such as, such as, um, such as, uh, the surprise, um, maybe surprise relationship or whatever it is that she finds in, in Kerr. Ooh, now I made the connection. I wasn't so sure if I was <laughs> actually going to say anything about that. I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say anything. But. Oh, no, I like it. I like it. Why did you make Emma a specialist in sewer systems? <laughs> I think, you know, like I said, I didn't know when I was starting. Um, she was already doing that in the in the very first two chapters that I wrote. But I think the reason for it is because I also did that at some point, and it was a world I was familiar with. So it was just um, easy to draw from that experience. Ah, okay, because I saw you have a degree in engineering. Mm -hmm. Right. Aha. Can you say more about Emma's relationship with her best friend, Spencer? Yeah, so Emma, um, Emma met Spencer in uh, her senior year, at, when she was um, in college, and they became best friends, and um, but they were more than best friends. They sort of fulfilled each other in ways that um, each one of them was lacking in other relationships. So Spencer was this um, very intelligent, um, very well-read person. He was in the arts. He was a writer. Um, and Emma was an engineer and she, you know, had a nine to five kind of life. So um, to her, the stuff that Spencer did were really interesting and they were out of her comfort zone and things that she knew. So he introduced her to worlds that she otherwise didn't have access to. And similarly, he was a good looking, um, you know, very well spoken person and was always because of his job was always trying to impress when he was around her. He didn't have to do that. He could just take comfort in being around somebody where he could be himself and not have to um, 
dress a certain way or speak a certain way or whatever. So they kind of um, they kind of gave each other things that they both needed. So they were not just fr- best friends; they were more than best friends. But there's no definition for what they were because they were not lovers. They were something in between. Mm-hmm. Ah, so Emma says she doesn't want the organized life her parents had. But don't we all feel like that when we're young? Like our lives are, go- are you know, going to be way more of everything, interesting, fun. I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering if that's based on your own background, if you're your own youth, or how you feel about it. I think you're right. I think we all at some point think that we can do something else, that it's different. But I think like all of us, Emma has some growing up to do. Because in many ways, like that comfortable life, I'm not talking about the organized life, but that comfortable life, the little things, the watching Jeopardy after having dinner, all of that is like the the things that we look forward to, the things that give us stability. So I think she has this idea that the reason she's unhappy is because of this organized life that she doesn't want but it really is not about that and I think she's learning that she will learn that by the end of the book and I think her is a catalyst to help her understand like he kind of sees through her in a way that other people won't call her out she calls her out on this stuff and I think she likes that challenge well since you brought him up let's talk about him a little bit Mm -hmm. how she finds him Kind of different. Mm. Yeah, she sees a television program and kind of becomes fixated and obsessed uh, with him in a way. And part of it is because in him she sees Spencer or characteristics of Spencer in him, um, whether physical characteristics and also the way he speaks. Um, and she starts to kind of their lines kind of get blurred in her mind as far as whether Spencer, you know, whether he is some uh, living depiction of Spencer or some way that Spencer is communicating to her. She kind of is not, um, not, it doesn't really make sense the way she feels, but that's, that's kind of how she finds him and fixates mm-hmm. on him. There's all on this show that she watches, there's other physicists that she can contact, but she just picks him and and focuses on finding him and speaking to him. Right. Uh, you're not gonna uh, expect this question, but why did you choose Glenn Gould's version of the Bach French Suites as Emma's favorite? Is it your favorite? Um of the French sweets, yes, it's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason I chose them is just he has this like uh, way of playing, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a musician, so it's not going to sound. Um, I'm not going to sound. It's probably not going to sound right. My explanation, but he has this like erratic style of playing in my head, and I think the way she feels, um, it kind of mimics it. If we were like to put it in, in in terms of music. So I, I just thought it was a good fit for her to, to um, listen to that at that time in the story. I would have never thought of it as erratic, but I know exactly what you mean. 
And let's just not tell Glenn Gould we called it that, okay? So. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I um, said. I don't think I have the right words to explain how it sounds to me. It's probably not a correct way of explaining it. But but it's how it sounds to Emma. And that's what she heard it as her, like the way her life was. It somehow, it spoke to her. So yeah. I, I, I liked that scene. I also love the scene in which um, little Lily strategizes about how she can get a cute pair, a cute new pair of jeans. Can you say more about Lily? Yeah, so Lily is this little you know, nine, 10 year old, I mean, uh, sorry, 11. Um, God, I'm really forgetting this. Lily. She's is, 11. She's, she's 12. Well, she, she then 12, she has a birthday. Yeah, she has. Exactly. So anyways, so she's this young girl whose life is kind of, um, is kind of, you know, she's being disoriented by this war that's happening around her. But at the same time, she is, she's just a girl, like all the other girls everywhere else in the world. And she wants jeans or a toy or whatever it is that kids want at that age. And, um, and so she, she sees her friend, a neighbor, wearing these jeans, and she wants them, but she doesn't want to tell the neighbor that she's going to go copy her jeans. So she's trying to look sneak sneakily look at the jeans so then then she can go buy them and not tell her that she saw them on her first um but you know it's just it's just kind of showing her just being a regular kid in this very irregular world but she's also very strategic about it because she realizes if her mother goes and buys her the same pair of jeans the neighbor will think she copied her but if she never says cute jeans Maybe the neighbor will think she never noticed. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and Emma, very... Emma kind of does something similar, too, or she wants to do uh -huh. something similar in a, in a scene where she's out with a work friend shopping. So Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I just thought that was brilliant. Um, Emma explains the observer effect to her therapist. So I'd like to know, do you, Sarah Gudazi, author believe that the act of observation alters the outcome of an event. Yeah, I think the important thing is not whether I believe it, but it's that Emma believes it in the story. Good point. Good point. Why is Emma so disoriented? Is it helpful to write things down as her therapist suggests? I think for someone like Emma, it is because she is a linear thinker. She is an engineer and a student at heart. So for her to sort of do this in a very organized way and try to understand it is just, um, is very useful. Even in the novel, she's constantly trying to understand it. She's trying to get to the heart of it. So I think um, for a personality like hers, writing things down, trying to go through them, is a is a good way to to um, to understand. Mm -hmm. Emma says that the act of swimming gives her a freedom she doesn't feel or experience on dry land. And I noticed that you are also a swimmer. Is that also how you feel about it? Could you could you say more about th that the swimming for your character and for you? 
I think for my character, you know, she there's a there's a denseness she feels in the air, especially since Spencer is um is has died. And when she swims, she can sort of just be in a different place and forget about everything. And there's a buoyancy that she feels in the water that she doesn't experience on dry land. Um, I also, I've just, uh, I always just loved the water. Um, and I love the feeling of being in the water. I don't know for, if for me it's the same thing as for Emma is the buoyancy or what. I just kind of become a child when I'm in the water and get excited as a child would when I go to a pool or something. So it's a little bit different, but we both have an affinity for water. And Lily does too. And Lily does too, yeah. What about her interest in uh, scientific issues, the parallel universes, wormholes, space-time continuum? Can you address that? I think it's the same thing. She is one of those people who needs to find an explanation for things. She can't just let them be. Um, she can't accept that this is um, an occurrence or a dream. She she is, even though she complains about rules and lines, she is of rules and lines. So I think that that kind of fits with her personality to try and go after that explanation. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about her boyfriend, his, her long-suffering boyfriend, <laughs> who uh, he's, I just, if, if, if I'm going to feel sorry for anyone in the book, it's him. I know. It's terrible. He's, um, he, he does kind of get the short end of the stick in this whole thing. But at the same time, um, you know, he also benefited from having Spencer around. Um, when Spencer was there, he could, whatever he didn't want to do with Emma, wherever he didn't want to go, he would kind of, uh, put it on Spencer or have her go do that stuff with him. So he kind of, um, he had less responsibility as a partner, uh, when he had the, they had the third person there. Um, and that's not how a, a, a healthy relationship works. So when Spencer is gone, um, he doesn't understand that that's how things worked. And Emma's starting to understand it. And by the end of the book, I think uh, Peter also starts to understand that it's not working and Mm -hmm. it can't work like this. So there are three places in the book, and each one is like a character. Uh, The Turan place, where the bombs are falling, and New Jersey, where Emma's busy designing sewer systems, and then New York City. A few important things happen in New York City. So um, can you address the importance of place? Hmm, That's interesting. I think what I was trying to do is to have these, especially the two main places, which are New Jersey and Turan. I wanted to have Turan be this lush, colorful place. So when you're reading it, you see color. You're reading in color. And New Jersey, I wanted it to be this drab gray world. 
because with sewers, with <laughs> sewers, exactly, <laughs> which is how Emma sees it. Um, mm. New York, I think, plays a a very small part in the book, so I'm not sure that New York um, gets as much um, of color, or you know, I, I don't think the the distinction is that much. New York is just kind of where she she meets the physicist and. Um, she pops in and out, but it is also a place that uh, she loved going to with Spencer, and she really understood New York because of Spencer. Mm-hmm. Ah, well, it was just a lovely read. I, I sat down and didn't get up oh, <laughs> until I finished. Thank you. <laughs> Although uh, when she started eating the apricots, I, <laughs> I felt the need to go get some fruit. So <laughs> there was that. Anyway, what are you working on next, Sara? I'm working on another novel, and it's about a climate scientist uh, at a New Jersey university who heads to Alaska to find out why her project has come to a halt. Um, part magical realism, part mythology. It's a story of uh, one woman's limits, the effects of climate change, and how the past is forever part of the future. Oh, it sounds intriguing. Let me know when it comes out. Oh, please. of course. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you today, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Galit. This was really fun. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Sarah Gudarzi, debut author of The Almond in the Apricot. Hope you have a good book to read today and every day.